love for you now to take your Bibles and join with me to the, as we go to the order of the Testaments, pausing in our series on these Sunday mornings and Psalms. I typically find that uh, a wise thing to do as I'm approaching Memorial Day weekend is to choose a particular battle uh, that might be well described in the scriptures pertaining to God's purposes and God's intent. And what I thought I might do in light of current events is to have us turn in the book of Ezekiel to chapter 38, chapter 39, a two-part series today and next Sunday. Covered this back in 2014, but in light of what's taking place in Russia, Ukraine, it seems to be rather fitting to deal with this whole subject again. Because I think as you explore these verses with me, you're going to see that so much of what we are seeing right now in geopolitical matters, in the Russian-Ukrainian tensions, has a footing in what is being described by the 6th century BC prophet who lived in time period with Daniel as well, when they were in exile away from the land of Israel. And the land of Israel seems to be at the forefront of what is being described in these verses. Hopefully you're making your way to Ezekiel chapter 38, 39. A little pause in our series in the Psalms. And I'd love to read to you from verse 1 down through verse 6. And then pick it up with you in verse 14 down through verse 16 where the purpose of this battle is offered. What I simply want to be able to say at this moment is that the battle of Gog and Magog is the beginning of a conflict which is completed by the battle of Armageddon. They need to be connected, but too many people jump immediately to the battle of Armageddon what we have to understand is that the Battle of Gog and Magog is the beginning point, and the Battle of Armageddon is the ending point of what God has in terms of his ways of dealing with the final days. So in chapter 38, here you and I find out in these words that the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking now, 6th century B.C., prophet exiled from Israel at this point, like Daniel. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, and thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. And I will bring you out and all your army and horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor and a great host. All of them with buckler and shield wielding swords, Persia, Cush, 
and put are with them, all of them with shield, helmet, and goma, and all his hordes. Beth Togarmah from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. And now over to verse 14. And here now you're going to be given the purpose, the reason, the motive behind all of this. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. Mark that if you would in your Bible. They're coming from the uttermost parts of the north. You, many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. Here comes your purpose statement. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In other words, God is going to use an unbelieving ruler at that point in time still to come as the means of achieving his purposes for his people for all times. We're going to have to explore this together. And to do that, we're going to start by looking to our Lord now in prayer. And so, our Father, what we want to do is to be true to your word. Now, we realize that when we're dealing with prophecy, that there's absolutely nothing here that catches you off God because you stand outside of time. And you see the past, you see the present, you see the future, all in the present tense. We thank you for that. There are no contingency plans within the sovereign throne room of the universe. You reign over all. What we want to do, Father, is to capture the essence of what these verses are all about. Try to create a linkage between past, present, and future. Understanding the geopolitical conditions globally today, but always with an eye on the fact that you are sovereign, you are in control, you are Lord over all. No need to worry, no need to stay up late at night fretting. You're in charge. And what's true of the way in which you work globally is the way in which you work within our lives personally. You reign. And there's such extraordinary peace knowing that you are the God who is Lord of all. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, and we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Love for you to look very carefully at the painting that appears on the screen. 
This is dated from 988 AD. The setting is Kiev. We see that in the news each and every day in Ukraine. This was the capital city at that point of what was known as Rus, R-U-S. This painting is found in Philadelphia. I want you to notice with me now certain features that stand out in this painting. Take, for example, what reigns above. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's cloaked, if you will. It's draped in white cloth. This cross stood above a gathering of both Ukrainians and Russians in this painting. Now, to the left is this leader, and he has a cross as well, and his eyes. The time period, 988 AD, he was Prince Vladimir, who was the ruler of what is known today as Ukraine. And what we see in this scene is a depiction of the gospel coming from the Ukrainians to the Russians. To the right of this leader is Princess Anne. And to our left, several of his sons. What I want you to be able to see furthermore is that when it comes to uh, this leader, notice that his hand is placed upon the shoulder of his son. Note it uh, there. His son, his son, Yaroslav, would become a leader who would be at the forefront of bringing the gospel from the Ukraine into Russia. Now, if you look very carefully at what's in his hand, there is here something that speaks to the fact that the gospel is being presented because here is Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, which you see below in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look all the more, what you're going to see here is that there are soldiers that are present seeking to maintain order. If you look at the background, what you find is that this is the city of Kiev. That is in the news, as we've said, to this very day. There are clouds over the city, and if one looks carefully into the painting, you're going to be able to spot the Apostle Andrew imprinted in to the scene. There's a rainbow that seems to be encompassing the situation, symbolizing peace, a statement being made of various people groups being brought together under the cross of Jesus Christ and as a result, baptized, identifying themselves with Jesus and Christ. Foreground, you see Ukrainians and Russians being baptized together and below the shield, there's a painter 
the painter of this very scene, who has chosen to place himself here in the midst of all this, Petro Andrasif. And so you look at this and you say, this has extraordinary bearing upon what is happening in global, political, geopolitical uh, situations and tensions of this very day, captured in one painting. What I would love to do in these next few moments is to capture the essence of what God wants to do prophetically by tying together this text to current events and onward and towards what is still to come. We're going to explore this passage together known as the Battle of Gog and Magog this week as well as the following week and try together together to be able to gain a better appreciation as to the significant observations God would want us to have, bearing in mind that Gog and Magog is the beginning of a conflict that is ended by the Battle of Armageddon. And so we're going to start off in our text, and I'm going to be summarizing at times because well, Ezekiel packs a lot of words into any given verse that you have in front of you here, and I, and I don't want to get, and get bogged down in the weeds. But through all this, I want to start by examining with you this battle of Gog and Magog by noting, first of all, in this text, the military alliance now being described in these opening, in these opening words. So, let's kick it off. And the word of the Lord came to me. He's in a difficult strait, Ezekiel. He's exiled. He's not among the people that he longs to be. There's a sense of aloneness in which he's processing the word of the Lord. And lo and behold, he's going to be told of an alliance of seven nations that have pitted themselves against God's people when he receives this word from the Lord, Son of Man, set your face toward Gog. Now, right away, you and I are going to have to ask ourselves, and who is Gog? Think in terms, not of a name, rather think in terms of a title that's tied to a position, such as Caesar such as Zah, such as Pharaoh, various titles being given throughout time to describe a leader. Well, the title at that time period that seemed extraordinarily fitting to what is being depicted in these verses is Gog. So now, Ezekiel. Set your face toward this commander-in-chief. He is described here as being the chief prince. He is leader of the land of Magog and chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him. Magog. Meshach. Tubal. If you and I were to try to understand this in modern-day terminology, what's being described? The answer? Russia, 
and various former Soviet republics. Prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God. Now notice the word behold. This is an extraordinarily visual word to communicate a verbal truth seeking to seize our attention. Behold, here's God speaking. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now shades of a time past for Jewish people who have been taken away by the Assyrians into captivity, 722 in B.C., and by the Assyrian forces, who would put hooks in the jaws of the captives. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, and all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them, buckler, shield, wielding swords. Now, once you get a sense that we are dealing with, with a region to the far north, and we'll address that in just a couple of moments, Notice the various aspects, the elements of this alliance of nations. In particular, you're up to verse 5, and it begins with Persia, which seems to be the leader of the pack in relationship to these people that we know as the Russians. And what is Persia? Persia is modern-day Iran. Now, what interests us is that if we pull out some ancient history books and we look very carefully at the ethnic connections between Iranians and Russians, we begin to see just what might be at work here. For you see, Iranians are not Arabs. Iraqians are, but not Iranians. Iranians and Russians come from the same Indo-European stock. I have been utterly fascinated looking at Iran through the last decades in its relationship to Russian leaders. Treaties made, alliances established, economic structures developed. So now, what we find at the very onset is that we're talking about some kind of Russian-Iranian alliance that furthermore pulls in together still other nations. There's Kush, which in today's terminology would be Sudan, Ethiopia, followed by, uh, followed by Put. And Put deals with Libya, Algeria, Tunisia. And then you've made your way into verse 6, and you're dealing with Goma, which has to do with Turkey. And then furthermore, Beth Togama, which involves Turkey, Armenia, and the likes. 
You pull all this together, and what you and I are told, once again, it continues to be highlighted that this is from the uttermost parts of the north. Uttermost parts. A sizable population, this military venture, always hordes. Many peoples are with you. Joe Rosenberg. A few months after I wrote the Ezekiel option, I was invited to the United States Capitol to meet with some of the most powerful political leaders in our nation. They had heard about the novel, and they were curious about my track record for writing fiction that had an eerie way of coming true. He's a messianic Jew. He knows Putin. He has worked with Netanyahu. He knows various political leaders on a first-name basis in the States, now lives in Israel, and has frequented Moscow. Our leaders in the U.S. were particularly intrigued by the notion that 2,508 plus years ago, an ancient Hebrew prophet had been able to look down the corridors of time and see nations that were not yet born and alliances that were not yet formed. And with all the events unfolding in Moscow, Iran, Tehran, elsewhere, they wanted to know more. So as I began explaining the war of Gog and Magog and how it will profoundly affect U.S. foreign and domestic policy, as well as the entire global economy, one of the leaders asked if we could back up for a moment and go directly to the source. He wanted to read Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38 to better understand the prophecy itself before considering its implications politically. The others agreed. I was taken back a bit. I had never led a Bible study for such an influential group, but I appreciated the seriousness with which they took the matter. So we all pulled out copies of the scriptures. I proceeded to read the first five verses of Ezekiel 38. Then each leader read another set of five verses until we had made it through the entire chapter. Questions began to flow immediately. Who is Gog? What is Magog? Why don't the words Russia, Moscow ever appear in the text? Do such words appear elsewhere in the book of Ezekiel? If not, how could I be so certain that one day the world would see headlines announcing that a dictator had arisen to power in Russia, rebuilding the Russian military, drafting a plan to conquer the Middle East and destroy Israel? And these were excellent questions. Took us right to the heart of the matter. Limited time permitted me to give only brief answers on Capitol Hill. But let me now walk you through the answers in a bit more detail. And let's start where these leaders did, by examining the prophecy itself, which is 
what we're doing. And so you start with what we have just identified here in verses 1 down to verse 6. As you and I now examine the battle of Gog and Magog, we're getting the chess pieces out, putting them on the board. Note the military alliance being described, this alliance of seven-plus nations mentioned in these verses. Now you're ready for the second significant observation. It comes out of verse 7 down to verse 13. Note, second of all, with me, the political uh, intentions that are being disclosed. Verse, verse 7. Be ready, he says. Be ready. Keep ready. You and all your hosts that are assembled about you, be a God for them. After many days, you will be mustered. Notice Gog is put in the passive sense. In other words, God the Father in heaven is sovereignly now pulling together in this military alliance to achieve God's purposes. Just like at the cross of Jesus Christ, God pulled together an alliance of Herod and Pilate, unbelievers, to be part and parcel of bringing Jesus to the cross to achieve the purpose of securing our salvation. Notice what God is now doing in geopolitical matters. You're up now to verse 8. After many days, you'll be mustered. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. 1948, Israel gains statehood. And no ancient peoples had ever experienced this in the course of history. But you see, God made a promise to the Jews. Abraham received the promise of land, his descendants, <coughs> and the boundaries thereof. Now in the fullness of time, God now is pulling things together. But lo and behold, after having brought them together, we notice 1948, they've been gathered in a land that had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. There is a sense of peace. Or is there? When I was standing in Tel Aviv, Israel, I just couldn't help but think of this scene. Former Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, was standing at a peace rally in Tel Aviv. Prior time, estimate 100,000 people gathered to celebrate peace with the prime minister and kings of Israel Square. And after singing the song of peace, Yitzhak Rabin placed the paper with the lyrics in his coat pocket and then an assassin's bullet left the words drenched in blood 
leaving the young nation in shock and peace at a peace rally in Tel Aviv. Brought out its people, brought out from the peoples, now dwell securely, all of them. But now God is saying to Gog, you will advance. Coming on like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your hordes and many peoples with you. My mind goes back to a statement by former Pakistani Prime Minister Ali Bhutto, who was chairing the Second Islamic Summit. He said, there is no doubt or division in Muslim ranks on the issue of Jerusalem. Quote, let me make it clear from this platform, he said, that any agreement, any protocol, any understanding which postulates the continuance of Israeli occupation of the holy city or the transfer of the holy city to any non-Muslim or non-Arab sovereignty will not be worth the paper it is written on. As Ezekiel writes on his form of paper, and God is in charge. And the sovereignty of God's purposes is being described. You're up now, aren't you? You're up now to verse 10. And thus says the Lord God on that day, pause, second Mondays with various leaders, the boards, we are exploring together end times teachings from the scriptures and looking at a constellation of phrases and words that pertain to the last days. Sometimes it's called the last day. Look for the various ways in which that usage is appearing. Think about a period of time rather than a 24-hour day. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, back it up. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind. In other words, God is now saying via Ezekiel to Gog, to a leader of the northern coalition, I'm going to invade your thought processes. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages, Israel. I'll fall down upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls, having no bars or gates. In other words, it's a depiction of vulnerability at this point. To seize spoil, carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations, which that has taken place and continues to take place as Jews return to the lands of Israel, 
who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba, Dedan, merchants of Tarshish, all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and seize and seize great spoil? The question is asked. 1949, David Ben-Gurion, Prime Minister, one year after statehood was reestablished for the Jews, said that Israel's policy consists of bringing all Jews to Israel, and we are still at the beginning. So now watch very carefully how all the events year by year, connect to the way in which God is operating generation by generation, decade by decade. And you consider the military alliance being described in 1 through 6. Second of all, consider the political intentions being disclosed in verse 7 and down through verse 13. And now, thirdly, and what I want to be able to do with you is to look carefully at the sovereign purpose and being revealed. This is God, not Gog, who is going to have the ultimate say as to the meaning, the reason for all of this. And so beginning in verse 14, therefore, son of man, this is God speaking now to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day, again now, there's a constellation of terms to describe the day of the Lord, a period of time when God breaks in. On that day when my people Israel, God is taking responsibility and maintaining ownership of the Jews. On that day, when my people are dwelling securely, will you not know it? Now, verse 15 is significant. Mark it. You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. We'll be showing a map in just a moment. But for now, from the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host and mighty army. It's been said that each year in May, if you want to understand geopolitical matters, where things are headed, listen to the commencement addresses at West Point. After having conducted a funeral yesterday for Sharon Schmidt, went back to my final uh, hours of preparation for this morning's various services. And I wanted to be able to read General Miley's commencement address to the West Point graduates. 
And so, with my computer screen in front of me open and Ezekiel 38 in front of me open, I was going back and forth, back and forth as he was talking about the robotics and new forms of military advancement and how today's uh, students are going to have to be prepared to be effective as tomorrow's soldiers. You're now into verse 16. Here is God's purpose statement. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud, like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land. Why, you're asking? That the nations may know me. In other words, there is an evangelistic purpose to all of this. A discipling strategy associated with this. Why didn't in our opening painting viewing, we see how there was this scroll in the hand of the successor of the leader of Ukraine as Russian people were being evangelized via the Ukrainian people. And it said Matthew 28, 19, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, Nations. And now here we find that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog. God is going to use an unbeliever for this purpose. I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, before the nations. Well, we need a map, don't we? We need to get our bearings. So look what appears now on the screen. And didn't it say... Didn't it say in verse 15, you will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north? Okay, here's Israel, Ukraine, Russia. Notice the relationship here pertaining to the uttermost parts. And so when I'm dealing with prophecies, and I speak to the leaders on Second Mondays. So I talk about plausibilities as they relate to certainties. Possibilities, plausibilities, certainties. Look for symbolism, what has previously been defined, described historically, what is currently understood by the readership at that time, and what at this point has not been revealed. I thought about all those things, plausibilities related to certainties. When an epicenter, Joel Rosenberg tells us that in 2000, three Russian journalists published first person. In my view, the most important book ever written about Putin. It's important not because the journalists offered their own insights or analysis into Putin, but because they let Putin speak for himself. They interviewed the Russian leader six separate times in the year 2000. Okay. Each interview lasted about four hours. The book is merely a transcript. When it comes to understanding Putin's ambitions and approach, 
It's a gold mine of intelligence. I have certain phrases highlighted. Putin on his mission in life. Answer. My historical mission is to stop what has been called the collapse of the USSR. To do this, he vowed to consolidate the armed forces, the interior ministry, and the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB, the secret police of the Soviet Union that he had been part of in Eastern Germany. If I can help save Russia from collapse, then I'll have something to be proud of. Another question about his leadership style. Everyone says I'm harsh, even brutal, without ever disputing his observations. Quote, a dog senses when somebody's afraid of it and bites. The same applies to dealing with one's enemies. If you become jittery, they'll think they are stronger. If you become jittery, they'll think you are strong. They'll, uh, they're stronger. One, only one thing works in such circumstances. You gotta go on the offensive. You hit first, hit so hard that your opponent will not rise to his feet. Pertaining to the history of the czars of time past of Russia, like the word Gog, from the very beginning, Russia was created as a super-centralized state that's practically laid down in our genetic code, traditions, mentality of the people. In certain periods of time, in a certain place, under certain conditions, monarchy has played and continues to play a positive role. The monarch does not have to worry about whether or not he will be elected or about petty political interests, about how to influence the electorate. He can think about the destiny of the people and not be distracted by trivialities. A question regarding his choice of history's most interesting political leadership, Napoleon Bonaparte. Pertaining to his rise from spy to president, in the Kremlin, I have a different position. Nobody controls me. I control everybody else. Now, this gives us a bit of a taste of, we're not saying that this is all related to today. It might be related to a successor thereof and the tomorrows of life. But what I want to do is to be able to take the Ezekiel option, as Rosenberg has put it, transfer it relevantly into 2022 living, and try to understand geopolitically with the map that stands behind me and in front of you, what is being stated here when Ezekiel in verse 15 said, you will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You'll come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. And in the latter days, I will bring you against my land. 
God will bring those people against God's land. That the nations may know me. And through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. If you begin to wonder, how could God create such an alliance? Well, he did at the cross of Jesus Christ. When he brought together the religionists, the Pharisees, the Jewish Sanhedrin, with the secularists, the Herodians, the Roman Empire, pulled it all together so that Jesus could die for your sins and my sins. And we have eternal life by putting faith and trust in Christ's finished work. But now, fourthly, back to the text again. I want you to note now the final outcome that's being assured. Thus says in verse 17, the Lord God. Question. Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? Notice again the constellation of terms regarding last days. But on that day, the day that Gog, he doesn't list a name, does he? He just gives a title. We're not using names, just offering a title. The day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God. My wrath will be roused in my anger, for in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare on that day. Now consider the climate conditions. On that day, be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Notice now the ecological effect, the fish, the birds, the beasts, and so forth. Notice the environmental factor, the quaking at his presence, God's presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, the cliff shall fall, every wall shall tumble to the ground. You take a deep breath. God doesn't seem to be finished yet. At this point, for in verse 21, he says, I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Now shades of the Midianites in the days of Gideon. Every man's sword will be against his brother. In other words, in this seven nation alliance, now the nations turn on each other. And there is now war from within. And with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will reign upon him and his hordes and many peoples who are with him. Torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. And you say, well, again, Lord, what's the purpose of all this? What's the meaning? What's the objective? Here's your answer. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. 
and now they'll connect first and second comings and be able to see in the purpose of Jesus dying where God took the secularist opponents and the religious opponents, brought them together into an alliance to achieve his purposes. As in the case of first coming, so in the case of second coming, you see the sovereignty of God. So you go back to that initial picture that you observed, the painting that we began to ponder, where there was this extraordinary baptism of Ukrainians and Russians alike. And the young man to be a leader who is holding a transcript of Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 in his hands. And what is above it all? A cross. Shaping, guiding, and directing the meaning and the purpose of what life is all about. That's Ezekiel 38. That's the Ezekiel option. We still have 39 to be continued next week. Let's stand together. So, Father, what we now have done is used your word, which is timeless, to now take it and relate it in a way that is timely. And we know that Matthew 24 describes birth pangs uh, pertaining to events globally. So help us to be wise in our obstetrics, to understand very carefully where things are, where things are headed, not to assume it's all today or in 24 hours or a year from now but to understand the trajectory of what you've established prophetically so that we can take these four significant observations from this morning and relate the good news of eternal life to people as we multiply disciples for Jesus Christ who are grappling with the current news which can seem so dismaying to them. We want to bring people to Jesus. We want them to understand that you reign and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.